Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hello and welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Don Watson's books include Recollections of a Bleeding Heart, Paul Keating, Prime Minister, Death Sentence and The Bush, which won the Indie Book of the Year and the New South Wales Premier's Literary Award. Today, I'm talking to Don Watson about his new book, The Passion of Private White. Don, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you. You've known Neville White since you were undergraduates together at La Trobe University in 1968. How would you describe Neville White then? And was there any indication of the life that he might lead? No, he was um, he was interesting because he was the son of a famous boxer, Kid Young. Um, and he grew up really in a boxing gym because the famous boxer became a famous trainer and trained a lot of Aboriginal boxers of whom one, George Bracken, was a sort of hero of mine when I was a kid. And uh, so Neville came with a bit of a glow about him in my eyes. And also, of course, he was a Vietnam vet. He'd come out of Vietnam in December and turned up at university in March. It had never occurred to him to go to university, but he didn't want to go back to his job when he came out of Vietnam. Like most of them, they wanted to do something. There was something wrong with the idea that you came out of Vietnam and went straight back into the job you were in before. So he decided to go to university. He hadn't matriculated, but they let him in anyway. Four years later, he won the university medal and he was off on an academic career. In the meantime, he was a he was edgy. Um, I was doing humanities, he was doing science, biology and genetics. But he crossed over a bit into humanities. I think he did philosophy while he was there and he had a tremendous urge to learn, I think. He was he was very conscientious at that level, but he was also, you know, he played football and, and he was very physical. You approach Neville with caution. He was likely to give you a two-fingered jab in the solar plexus for no particular reason. It's easy to be wise after the event, but I never thought that you know his behaviour was down to Vietnam, maybe to army training, um, but um, he never talked about the engagements in Vietnam, which in the end caused his deep mental troubles that came upon him later, and the, the diagnosis of PTSD. He was, you know, he became a good friend. That's uh, 53 or four years ago. So, you know, it's been an enduring friendship. What was Neville's attitude to the war in Vietnam and to conscription in general? Did he readily accept his conscription into national service? He wasn't a draft resistor. He went in thinking, well, it won't do me any harm. He was always opposed to the war. He had a, a friend in Geelong where he grew up, a man called Neville Scarlett, who was also registered in science. But, but Neville was Neville Scarlett was a... Um, a Marxist, I suppose, and um, little to Neville's left. But Neville opposed the war all along, and um, and that was a minority position in the mid-60s. When in 1967, after two years training or 18 months training, they asked him the platoon he trained with, was he prepared to go to Vietnam? He said no, and he refused to go. So all his now close friends went off to Vietnam and he was left uh, in a, um, an army hospital looking at mainly soldiers' urine to check for BD. In the end, he couldn't stand it. 
uh, doing that. He after three or four weeks, he he thought he you know he was tormented by the idea that these men might be wounded or killed. Um, he would never be able to forgive himself. Um, he he was dodging something that they were trained for. They were going through with it. So he was put in the awful position of um, feeling that while he was opposed to the war, he was and trying to find what the moral position was. He, in the end, I think, described, decided that friendship was a moral position and that he had to honour the friendship. So he went. So his uh, early studies of genetics, and this is where we get to, I guess, the heart of the book, brought up an interest in First Nations peoples and particularly the Yungle people. Who are the Yungle people and where are they situated within the greater area of Arnhem Land? Well, if you think of that box-like bit of the map at the top of Australia, the Arnhem Land, um, the Yungle and northeast Arnhem Land, so they're the right-hand top corner. If Australians have been there, they're most likely to have visited would be Nullanboy or Gove. 30-odd kilometres south of Nullanboy is Yakala, where the um, people go hunting for you know, paintings and barks and things of that kind. And um, there's a great gallery there. There are coastal Yungle all around the, uh, on the Arafura Sea and the, and the Gulf of Carpentaria. The people that Neville finally settled with were inland about four hours west-southwest of Nullanboy at a place called Doinji, just west of the Mitchell Ranges, which is it's hard stone country. Um, not a great deal um, to eat there, really. But the two main clans, the Rotangu and the Wagalak, um, they moved between with their seasonal movements between the Arafura Swamp up near Miranacha in the north down to the Walker River and they, a very large area, um, but there were only ever probably about 150 of them. When Donald Thompson, the first anthropologist in the area, who went through in the 1930s, an extraordinary man, Donald Thompson, and he estimated their numbers at between 100 and 150. So we're talking about a very small population of people, historically small. And when Neville arrived in 1971, they had only just stopped their seasonal movement. So the attraction for anthropologists and geneticists and the rest was that they were among the very last people to live on a savanna, um, the hunter-gathering life, unchanged, who knew their country as intimately as Aboriginal people generally had known their country before white occupation. So they were of great interest in it. When Neville arrived, it's a time when anthropologists everywhere in the wake of Levi-Strauss and Malinowski and, and um, so on are looking for such people um, who are still leading traditional lives too. Because the idea was that you, by studying them, you could get some idea of the way human beings had lived for most of the history of human beings. And Neville was particularly attracted to these people, A, because he was told by those who knew that they were the last of the Yungle to walk their land and live in the absolutely traditional way. And also because they were Savannah people, that's where human beings basically began. So we're talking about a nation of people, I suppose, a group of people, the Yungle, or the book discusses three or four clans within that group of people. The Yungle are a sort of federation. 
what do they have in common, those clans, and how do they differ in terms of language or social structure or even religious beliefs? This could take us some time. It took me a long while to understand. It took several years. There are probably anything up to 5,000 Yungle, maybe. Let's say there were 30-odd clans. The Yungle divide into two moieties, and this is sort of important, the Yiracha and the Dua. Yiracha marry Dua and Dua marry Yiracha, and Yiracha don't marry Yiracha and Dua don't marry Dua. So, Gregory, this take too long. People have to read the book. The, the, uh, the two clans we're talking about, if we keep it to them, the Rotunga were the owners and the Wagalak were the managers, and but they were an intermarrying clan. I think Neville estimated about 75% of marriages were between Rotunga and Wagalak. Um, and there were a couple of other clans nearby that they also married. The Rotunga could marry into, like the Jumbapinga or also Dua, and so on. There are differences in the language. There's sometimes great differences between dialects, but between Wagalak and Rotunga, there's very little difference, and they maintained the only difference they maintained was really for the purposes of marriage to say, well, you are different. Otherwise, the division might, might be blurred. At the same time, there were ceremonial connections between all the clans. So the, even though they're a long way away, there's a strong ceremonial connection between the Warramiri on Elko Island and Doenji, which is a long distance away. The dynamic involved here is that the Rotungu Wagalak, being isolated, believed themselves to be very different to the coastal people. Um, the coastal people, they could maintain, knew nothing about them. They had held on to their traditions. They hadn't been affected in the same way by the Macassans who'd been coming for two or 300 years to the coast, although they were affected to some extent and took up a lot of words and some of the technology. They saw themselves as different people with a culture, a culture that was significantly different. And they were seen as people who were vaguely admirable for their insistence on staying on the land and refusing to go into the missions or, or um, go into any kind of serious contact with the West. But they were also seen as sorcerers. It made people a bit nervous, really. And that has consequences later because the Rotungu find it hard to get wives. And in the end, um, without wives and without offspring, they lose out. So now at Doenji, in the space of the time I've been going there, all the Rotungu men are dead, and so are their sisters, um, bar one, I think. And the place has become much more a Jumbapingu um, and Wangalak place, particularly Jumbapingu, just by natural forces, not conquest. And it, it retains its great traditions, but the ownership of it has changed. And that is probably a force within Aboriginal society across the board, right, right across the continent. We're talking about long periods of time, and often the cultural change was just simply to do with demographic change, with reproductive forces. The fact that Neville sort of observed it over 50 years means that he's actually been able to see how change might occur that looks very puzzling to archaeologists and anthropologists for that matter. While there's a sort of sense of timelessness within our understanding of Aboriginal society, it was certainly a part of the cosmology that there is not a beginning and an end. There is just the every when, as Bill Stanner called it. There is change. There is a dynamic within it. Um, and it depends on personalities and um, chance. We won't spend any time talking about the tensions that 
the white invasion created. So we're talking about successive waves of pastoralists, of prospectors, of missionaries as well. One of the very strong threads that runs through this book is the tensions. A number of people that can, I guess, illustrate this tension, but there were two in particular. One is Tom uh, Bringal, Tom Gunamini Bringal. I hope I'm saying that reasonably well. And the other one is this fellow called Cowboy. Now, Tom was a senior man in the community of Doingi. Cowboy, on the other hand, represents someone who is, uh, I guess we call moving with the times. He's deciding that his area might be turned into a cattle station. Can you tell me a little bit about, about those two characters, Tom and Cowboy, and the tensions that exist between those two men within the community more generally? We tend to look at a society which is so unlike our own, and we see everybody as the same, basically. But in fact, as I said, there's a dynamic within it, and personalities decide a lot of these things. Um, they certainly decide a lot of these things when, where there's polygamy, for instance. And there's a famous Yungle man from over on the coast, or Wongu, who, who had 23 wives and more than 60 children. He's a real force of nature, and he changes a lot of things because if he's got 23 wives, that means a lot of men are going without or they're cuckolding him or something's going on there. In other words, there are the ideal rules and the ideal marriages, and then there's what really happens. So if you look at the reactions to the pastoral invasion, you can actually see it in the way someone who's been raised with the cattle on a pastoral thing, even though he may still be ceremonially very strong and have great knowledge of the songs and all the rest and the facts of the land are contained within the songs and the ceremonies, but he may dress in a singlet and a big broad hat and wear moleskin trousers and think like a cattleman. And his body shape will be different too because he's eaten like a cattleman. So he'll be bigger and stronger and his dogs will be bigger and stronger and so on. That's cowboy. Who had, whose people, his father, had taken him in the 1930s from the very hard country. They were also Rotungu, but they were a different clan within the clan of Rotungu, and he'd gone down to the cattlemen beyond the Walker River. They'd walked off their land, given up, understandably so. He came back to Doinji and wanted to take it over, claiming he had strong ceremonial knowledge, and he just sat there. Tom, on the other hand, had never gone into the stations into the cattle, raised by his stepfather, Dulatarama, and his real father, Byman. And Tom is a, a conservative traditionalist, absolutely in every detail, worries about things going wrong if you mess things up, dangerous ceremonies and so on, and absolutely opposed, like all the Rotunga, to any kind of cattle. There's still stray cattle wander around and left there by the pastoralist years before would say shoot and eat, but... So Tom's the traditionalist and Cowboy's the character who's been moving on. Tom has, most of his diet and his lifetime has been what they've hunted and gathered. He's smaller, he's slenderer. He's cagey, you know, he's no mug, Tom, but he's a conservative and he wants Doingy to be a place where the language is maintained, the traditions are maintained, but the kids learn Western ways so that they can adapt in due course. It's at the heart of the first half of the book is this um, standoff between the two men who never speak to each other. But it's it's like cowboys trying to pull off a coup 
And Tom's trying to find ways of resisting. Cowboy's about four times bigger than him, which makes the dynamic a little difficult. Let's get back to Neville White. And I want to talk about the meeting between Neville White and Tom. On one hand, we've got this scientific mind, I think you call it. And on Tom's side, more representative of what you called wild thought. How did they come to meet and what was the nature of their relationship? They came to meet because Neville went out there having done his genetic research right across northern Australia um, with groups everywhere. And then he concentrated after a famous man in on Elko, a great Jungle statesman, David Buramura, told him, if you want to understand traditional Jungle society, you've got to go to this place called Doinji where they've just stopped their seasonal movements, but they they know the country like no one else. So Neville flies in there with a with an equally famous missionary called the Reverend Harold Shepherdson, a Methodist missionary, who, who's a really interesting character and in that the missions messed up an awful lot, but they did things which you wish were still being done in a way. That sense of vocation was powerful and very good influence. Anyway, Shep flew him in there in his homemade plane. He hadn't a word of the dialects. They welcomed him, put him to work straight away, and he um, stayed on for months of each year for the next 50. Tom was then a young man, right from the beginning, didn't much like the idea of, he was suspicious of Neville, unlike the other, the others were much more welcoming. It took Tom a long time to come over, very quiet. But in the end, they became mainly through natural attrition. His father and stepfather died, his brothers died young, and Tom became the senior man. And Neville's great informer, they went out, they spent weeks in the bush together, Tom showing him one thing or another, teaching him as much as he possibly could. So in the end, now Neville probably knows more of the country, in fact, no question he does, than the young men at Doinji. And they now ask him to pass on the knowledge to them. So there was a profound relationship between the two of them, a great love between the two, very touching the whole thing, I find. Now, Neville went out there on the basis of studying the genetics. Were there questions in, in his mind that he wanted to answer? And did he find the answers that he was looking for in that process? Or as is in the case of a lot of research, did that just raise more questions and more challenges for him? I think there's a bit of both in that. What he did find with the genetics was quite interesting. He had no DNA then, of course. He used fingerprinting. What he was trying to establish was the degree of genetic diversity. Now, I should add that a lot of this stuff is now considered very sus, seen as sort of a hangover from imperial, the days of imperial anthropology and all the rest. As I understand it, there was a lot of question marks over the taking of blood. Yes, well, he was very reluctant to do that. Uh, a lot had done it. Not all uh, Aboriginal communities were willing to provide it after a while. But the fingerprinting produced interesting conclusions, which... Um, I think are probably useful to First Nations people now when they're trying to establish where they came from, especially since so many were moved around by the missions, by governments, by protectorates and so on, that they can actually now with this material find their way back to where their people actually came from. So that's a kind of unintended consequence of this work, which might in other regards be seen as morally doubtful. Neville's work was fingerprinting, that you can tell an awful lot about a person from a fingerprint. I think the thing that he feels most, that was most useful from 
This was that he discovered that the Jung will bear close genetic connection to the people of the Gulf country. One of the interesting things about the Yungle people is that their language is completely unlike the language of the surrounding groups. About 90% of Australia speak a common language, the Parmenuan. The non-Parmenuan is uh, a band that runs across the north and surrounds the Yungle. On the west side of the Goida River, on the south side of the Walker, they use prefixes. On the other side, they use suffixes. This is a puzzle. Why are the Yungle isolated linguistically? Neville's genetic studies showed that they are related to the Gulf people, um, the bottom of the Gulf, which suggests that his theory might be right, that they were isolated by rising sea levels, the creation of the Gulf of Carpentaria replacing Lake Carpentaria and so on. So these are interesting notions which may not be accepted by the Yungle, who would, of course, say we've been there forever. Um, but there's lots of archaeological evidence to say that they replaced some people by one means or another. There's, you know, there are even at Doinji, there are very clear signs of one group coming in in the rock art, one group coming in and replacing another. Anyway, that's by the by. He certainly mapped the the, the different linguistic and genetic diversity of Northeast Arnhem Land in ways that are probably more interesting to white academics than to um, the Yungle people themselves. Nevertheless, it's knowledge of the country, of this country on which we live, which I think is highly valuable. We've never had a close understanding of this country. We've never really... I'm very firmly on the side of the anthropologists, as the Yungle were, as certainly these two clans were. They were happy to have this knowledge stored, and other anthropologists found the same thing. And Betty Meehan records... She was up at the Anbarra on the on the coast, and she's, there was an old man there who said, she's got her notebook, and she says, he says, you get him down quick, because he knows the knowledge is fading. Um, if we don't get it down now, we'll lose it altogether. And in Neville's case, I think that's proved to be true. He GPSed the whole region, and, and so knows all the sites, all the lines connecting them and so on. It's good knowledge to have. Um, it would be a great pity if all the knowledge of pre-European Australia was basically lost. There's a moment there when Neville White, the scientist, crosses a line from being a scholar to becoming an activist and an and advocate for the Yungle people. Where is that moment? What was the motivation for making that cross from scholar to activist? When he arrives... He does a lot of work with their health. He, you know, he tests them for what their triglyceride levels are. Once they take up a sedentary life at this place, certain things happen that wouldn't happen if they were moving around. Certain diseases, tooth decay because they're getting in stores that are, um, from time to time are being flown in. They're eating more sugar, more flour. They're still hunting. The amount of Western food is increasing to about 20 or 25% of the total diet. This has effects on their health. He's also interested in what their health traditionally would be. And he just establishes beyond any doubt that the people at Doenji on a traditional diet or a mainly traditional diet are much healthier than people in the hub towns or on the stations who are eating Western food, much, much healthier. So he's always doing that, but he's not interfering in doctoring to them. He takes doctors up there to measure their health, but he's not there to cure them. 
because as an anthropologist, his job is to be the participant observer. So you that's the Melanowski idea of you live there among them, you observe, you don't get involved in anything. If they ask you to be part of a ceremony, that's all right, but you don't impose yourself on anything. You simply listen, learn the language and get it all down. I sometimes think it's a little bit like uh, Proust's interest in society, you know, that you, you're you interested in the, in the minutiae, the the little things. It's through that that you begin to understand how it works and why people behave in certain ways, which otherwise, if you don't understand the minutiae and the, you don't understand why that person is going off into the bush or why that person is saying what he's saying. Then there is the kind of evidence of suffering and uh, long-term problems. The evidence for him comes in the form of a man called Milliwadu who's camp, who camped with his wife next to him in the general configuration of Doenji, which by then is basically lean-tos and what we call gunyas, I suppose. This man, he gets up one morning and he's seen his teeth are terrible in terrible shape, but his wife is sitting on top of him and prodding his gums with a, a hardened stick and he asks what she's doing and she says he's got uh, there's a grub in his gums. He said, you know, he's always had pus running from the corner of his mouth and all this blood and God knows what, and Neville buckles at this point. So he gave him some antibiotics, which he took with him every minute, and it cured it very quickly. As it happened, the wife came a couple of days later with a tobacco tin, and in it was a grub, and she said, that medicine of yours is very good. It um, got the grub out, see. And um, he said, well, you're going to get more grubs if you don't if you go on eating as much sugar. And he tells them all, you know, you've got to stop eating the sugar or at least rinse your mouth after you've used and all this. So dental health becomes one of the great ways of curing. But from then on, he does sort of minister to them for their health and their general well-being, and, and that quickly becomes an... At about the same time as he's diagnosed with PTSD, he begins to... He has great problems trying to, trying to keep himself together. At all his, What happened in Vietnam starts to come back to him in overwhelming ways. And his shrink says to him... Well, what do you want to do with your life now? And he says to him, I'm going to do what I can at Doenji. And he goes to Melbourne Rotary and finds two really terrific men there who become sort of stalwart defenders of what he's doing. And he begins to build houses and then he gets an even better idea at a school and what have you. And he gets an even, and takes people up there to look after their health then he decides to take his old platoon because by this time he's made contact with his platoon fund. They've got all the same problems he's got. They've all had breakdowns of one kind or another. They're drinking too much or they're all on pills and seeing shrinks. So he takes them all up. There's a moment there where Neville has brought a group of Vietnam vets up to Doingy. It goes like this. One of them says to Neville, Are you taking your pills, Neville? Take your fucking pills or I'm going home tomorrow, said Glidey. Glidey's one of these... Viet uh, veterans after you've taken his pills. And I wondered, is this sort of somehow representative of the outcome, a kind of rough camaraderie that was built in Vietnam that somehow translated to this rough country and the thing that they have in common are these troubled minds? He started taking the vets up there in about 2001 or two when he'd made contact with all of them. For 20 years, they made no contact. They were plucked out of the jungle when their time was up and they never saw each other again. Very, very badly treated by the Australian Army and the Australian government. And Vietnam caught up with them eventually. 
So he began taking them up there, and they went very happily. And they worked like Trojans. He got a school built, and then he, and he got houses built, and he got plumbing fixed. He got all the things done, or most of the things done, that government and contractors had failed to do or had done very badly. And he brought to them something which Simone Weil says is the most important thing a human being can have, and that is he brought to them this close attention, looking after these people. I mean, the one you just mentioned, Glidey, Dave Glide, said to me several times, you know, I had seen, I know about how people can suffer, but I had never seen anything like these people. Their disadvantage was profound because for all that Neville was doing for them, the services were terrible. They were trying to cope with marrying their traditional society with pressure from the West. They'd been themselves in many ways traumatised, I think, just by the fact of the pastoral invasion when many of the immediate ancestors of the old men when Neville first arrived had fought a war with the pastoralists. There are terrible, terrible stories of that war. There was one old woman told Neville uh, the stockmen had come and had shot the men. The women and children had fled. The children had got up trees and they'd shot them out of the trees like rotten fruit was the um, expression she used. They're sort of tremendously admirable, I think, in their courage and resilience. But trying to live in these houses, the council had provided three or four houses, the plumbing was no good, and just living in one place creates tensions that used to be broken up by in the hunting and gathering days because bands would just go off, there's a bit of tension here, we'll go that way, you go that way, we'll meet, you know, in a while. So it worked rather effectively. As a sedentary community, that couldn't be done. So there were these sorts of disputes that were hard to resolve. And contractors were appalling in the way they installed things. I mean, one case was a, a contractor who put in a septic tank allegedly, which turned out to be a 44-gallon drum cut in half, which lasted six months. And then there was sort of stuff spewing in all directions. So I think the, the vets had a feeling um, that they were doing good. It gave them a certain purpose. And they kept going for years every year for two or three months at a time. In the end, they sort of, a lot of them gave it away. Dave Glide went on for years and years after that. So I think it was sort of therapeutic. It was certainly therapeutic for Neville. Um, and I think it was therapeutic for the for the Jungle, for the for the clans. The, the place does not end up a kind of ideal community, but what it does, there, there has been little or no violence. There have been no suicides there. There's no alcohol there. There's no... The general level of health these days is not bad at all, much better than the hub towns, much better than virtually any of the towns across Australia for all those things. There is a school there that's still running, 20 or 30 kids go to the school. The numbers will fall off in the wet because it's very hard to live out there in the wet. It'll always be there as a sort of this strange village on the savannah. The houses they built were really good houses for that sort of climate and environment. It's given people a chance. It's kept them out of the misery of the hubs. Neville struggled very often thinking, what the hell have I done here? You know, this is all too much for me. And if I led them up the garden path, you know, it would, it would be better just to have abandoned this. And I don't think anyone from Doinji would say that. And in a way, that much agency must be granted them. I mean, they would say... This is what we wanted.
there is a lesson there that I mean somehow in the transition of the two cultures that the missions at their best provided the same example, that it, it can't be done. I mean, the funny thing about white pastoral invasion, which was not true of the Macassans, but the white pastoralists, it was as if they took over the lands of Australia and then expected the Aborigines to form a queue for a job. You know, it would all be done like that. This was a different approach. It was really saying, well, we owe you attention to your needs. And this provided it. This care is what matters. And you can call it in its various forms, you know, too much attention. It makes them dependent and all this sort of thing. Well, this really didn't. It actually kept their culture alive. It's curious. Someone told Neville in 1967 who had been there, and he said, oh, that, that mob there, I've been out there, they're terrific. They seem to, you know, all get along pretty well. And it was because their culture was intact. And they were wise to say we're better off if we keep our culture intact, even if in the long run it's not going to last, even if it's got to adapt but if that is to be done too, if you're serious, if we're serious about the adaptation and want them to succeed, then we have to provide good dedicated teachers, good dedicated care, so that they, when they, one of the things they built there was a workshop, apart from the first six months, they could never get the government to provide a technical teacher, a trainer. All those young men wanted was to be taught the skills that they could then use how to fix vehicles, how to carpent, these sorts of things. So if we're serious about this, then we make sure we get the best teacher into those into that school. We provide trade teachers for young men and so on. And we didn't do that. At Doinji, that was Neville tried and succeeded up to a point. That's probably all you can ever hope for. There are positive lessons to learn from it, I think. Don, there's so much more to this book than we've discussed, and I hope people really do go out and buy it because it's um, a great lesson, a great survey, and a wonderful book. So, Don, thank you for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you. All the best. I've been talking to Don Watson about his new book, The Passion of Private White. It's published by Scribner, and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. Subscribe to Good Reading Print and Online Magazine at goodreadingmagazine.com.au.